Hello and welcome to Tips and Tales, Ski Racing Media's official podcast for the week of April 3rd, 2019. I am Sean Higgins and I'm joined by Ski Racing staff writer Mackenzie Moran. Hey guys. On today's show, we want to give you an inside look into how we cover World Cup racing here at Ski Racing Media. We're going to go over what we do when we're over in Europe and talk a little bit about the less than glamorous side of the job when we're covering races from home in the States. To wrap things up, we also have another college skiing segment from ski racing intern and Dartmouth student-athlete Jimmy Krupka, who sat down with former NCAA champion and current American World Cup skier Brian McLaughlin. So I think this is going to be a really interesting show. Mackenzie, so you just finished your first season covering the World Cup for ski racing media. You did some traveling over in Europe, and I'm curious what your thoughts are from year one on the team. Well, when I was first hired with ski racing the intro to the world cup was that it was going to be well what did you say sean you said welcome to the circus (laughs) and that to me is a pretty strong example of exactly what the world cup is like um it's kind of all over the place in terms of trying to navigate so many different schedules when there's cancellations and when I was there um, two races were canceled so there was a lot of travel adjustments that had to be made fortunately I've traveled a lot on my own before so I was able to figure that out but there was a lot of road tripping that needed to be done to get from place to place and the whole experience just kind of flew by for me because I'd never been embedded in the tour like that before And there's so much that goes on behind the scenes from an organizational committee standpoint and from an athlete standpoint, coach's standpoint, media standpoint that you don't see when you're watching on television that take the experience to an entirely new level. Nice. And was there anything that totally surprised you that you didn't expect to to be a part of the job that ended up uh, being a part of your life this season? You know... I think the thing I enjoyed the most, this is kind of offbeat, doesn't have to do with racing that much, but was the hospitality of the organizing committee. Um, I was kind of expecting to go in and be in the press room and have to figure out food and all of that on my own. So I think for my first race, I went to the grocery store and I stocked up on snacks and different things to help me out throughout the day because I figured I wouldn't have time to stop and sit down and eat. But the press rooms do a really good job of taking care of you, making sure that you feel just as welcome as the athletes and the teams so that you can do your best job while you're on the ground and have access to um, the best Wi-Fi you can possibly get, The press conferences are right there so that you're able to talk to the athletes after the race is over. If you don't get a chance to in the finish corral, there's just so many things that they do to try and make your job easier that I didn't expect. And so that was a really pleasant surprise. So, Sean, you've been on the tour for the last four years as a World Cup veteran. What are some things that you've learned? I would say I've learned two two big takeaways from the last four years one is you'll always need more time than you think and two things will go wrong at some point during your trip and you just need to adapt to it i remember 
I my first year over in Europe, I was driving from Wengen, Switzerland to Kitzbühel, Austria, and it's about a six-hour drive. Um, it was snowing pretty much the entire time, and for anyone listening who's never been to Kitzbühel, Kitzbühel is not a big place. It's a very old town, so the streets are very windy and narrow, and a lot of them are one way, and I'm not exaggerating when I'm telling you that I spent three hours driving around the town of Kitzbühel to try and find my hotel. Um, so plan ahead, find some good maps. Unfortunately, you can't always trust Google Maps. Things will go wrong at some point and you just have to roll with those punches and adapt as best you can. Yeah, I had a pretty funny camera mishap this season where all of a sudden my gear got too cold despite me having hand warmers taped to the side of it so that it wouldn't get cold and just stopped working in the middle of an interview that I needed to grab for NBC that was pretty big and it was so embarrassing because I just rolled with it and acted like nothing was wrong and just kept the interview going because I didn't want to tell the athlete that my camera wasn't working in the middle of the interview and then had to ask another cameraman to help me try and figure it out after after the fact and neither of us could figure it out so I thought that I was gonna have to wrap it up and I wasn't gonna get any interviews and then all of a sudden my camera came back to life and started working again and I still have no idea what happened yeah camera mishaps happen every every year on the world cup no matter what oh yeah (laughs) I've had waterlogged camera gear from standing out in the rain for six hours and I've also had my camera shut off because it was too cold outside so we've all been there and for a lot of those those interviews you kind of only have one shot with these athletes because they're they have time restraints too they have doping control they need to get to they have the main press conference they need to get to and it's really almost a courtesy for for these athletes to take time out of their post-race plans to come and talk to uh members of the media in the finish area like we get to do with NBC and for people listening we have a very special partnership with NBC where we uh, provide interviews in the finish and we shoot b-roll during inspection for the broadcast Um, and so we're in on a race day in Europe we're actually in constant contact with the studio back in New York getting asks from the producers there for interviews or shots they need and uh, it can be pretty stressful you can get a, a lot of uh interesting requests from the folks back at NBC, but more or less we're able to to get them what they need and like i said things sometimes go wrong and you just need to roll with the punches and, and do the best you can but uh it's definitely an adventure in europe with ski racing media i do think that's my favorite part overall is being able to get on course during inspection and kind of watch the athletes go through that pre-race process of visualizing the course talking it out with their coaches figuring out what they need to do, what line they're trying to take. And being in the middle of all of it changes the atmosphere entirely and helped me with my writing a lot because it helped me see what was actually going on and not just the start and the finish, which is usually what you get when you're watching on TV. There's so much more happening and so much more prep that goes into taking a solid, clean run than you get to see when you're watching from home. Yeah, absolutely. The professionalism on the hill during a World Cup is is something to see 
just with uh, you have servicemen, you have coaches, you have athletes, you have course workers, and everyone is so professional on on these World Cup hills. And you have media weaving in and out of everything with the cameras. And it's uh, to to see the focus that these athletes have, even though there are camera crews following them around, especially so some of the bigger racers like Michaela. And uh, Marcel Hirscher, Lindsey Vaughn, Axel Svindal, like their cameras following them around everywhere. And they still have the mental ability to focus in on what they need to do and perform on race day with all of those distractions. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. So let's talk a little bit about um, what our day to day is like during the season. I know we talked a little bit about our NBC partnership. That's when we're over and fortunate enough to be over in Europe traveling around. Um, but when we're not in Europe, we're actually covering the races from home. We wake up in the middle of the night, turn on uh, NBC Sports Gold at about 1.30 in the morning for us in the mountain time zone. And uh, we watch the race and write a story afterwards. So when we're in Europe, Mackenzie, and we're in this, it's called a mixed zone at the finish. And there's a you have the Finnish corral, and there's a zone for the athletes, and then there's a zone behind that for members of the media. How does a mixed zone work? Well, there's designated sections within the mixed zone for different levels of journalists. So you have the live TV production area. You have an ENG area, which is where Sean and I usually hang out. That's where you are recording for TV, so you get a little bit more access, but not as much as just a straight print journalist would. They're kind of farther down the line. So press officers will walk athletes through this process of going to different media outlets. They start with live TV. They go to ENG next and then print. So the bonus of our partnership is that we get better access to the athletes and have more opportunity And a little bit more time to get off those really quick interview questions that we need to tell a good story and also help our partnership with them. And we should say there's a definite uh, priority level in in the mix zone. So, for example, when Michaela Schifrin finishes her run, she has um, live TV like uh, Austrian TV, Swiss TV, German TV who are on site broadcasting a live feed from the finish. Um, they get priority with interviews with athletes. So uh, Michaela would finish her run, she'd get dressed, and she'd head up to the live TV platforms, do a few interviews there. And then the ENG, which stands for Electronic News Gathering Zone, um, is next in line. That's where we are with NBC. Uh, other camera crews like CNN is usually with us in there. Uh, BBC is normally in us in there with us as well. And then we get a chance to do interviews. And then she moves down the line to print media, your AP, your newspaper writers, and, and all of that. And and how we are able to talk to these athletes is because of these press officers. Megan Harrod is the press officer for the U.S. ski team. So if we have a request from NBC for an interview with an American athlete, protocol is for us to first go through Megan in the finish and request that we talk to Steve Nyman, for example. And then she would then talk to Steve, be like, hey, Sean with NBC would like to talk to you. And then he can either say yes or no. They're under, usually they're under no obligation to talk to press if they don't want to. So then Megan would come over and say, yes, he'll come over when he's ready. And then Steve comes over, we do our interview. 
And then uh, we send that footage off to NBC for their broadcast later on in the day. And these relationships that we build with these press officers are, are really critical for us to get our job done. It's it's one thing to try and flag down a stranger in the finish, but if we have built some kind of rapport with with some of these press officers, especially from the bigger nations like Switzerland and Austria, it's that much easier to get noticed and and get the interviews that we need to get for us, our writing at Ski Racing and also NBC's broadcast to make the the shows as engaging as possible for everyone watching at home. Another really important relationship to have in the Finnish Corral is a relationship with the FIS media organizers. So there are different ones for men and women that help coordinate interactions with FIS and they're the people that do the quick interviews after the race when the athletes are still sitting in the leader box. They help coordinate the entire event and when I was first starting out this season my relationship with FIS was really really important because they fed me so much information that I needed to navigate the media area correctly and also helped me out with athletes from other countries when I was brand new and had no idea who the press officers were, didn't know who I needed to get in contact with, et cetera, et cetera. So thank you, Fist, for supporting us while we're over there because honestly, I don't think I would have done as well this season if I didn't have that relationship. Yeah, that's a really important point to make, I think. Because even though some of these Finnish areas, especially the bigger races over in Europe, uh, they can be very intimidating. And for uh, you to realize that there are so many people there, that their job is to make your job easier. And as soon as you realize that and take advantage of those relationships and people, your job gets that much easier to do. Um, And it's just a a matter of opening your mouth, introducing yourself and uh, doing a little old fashioned networking. In the, in the World Cup. <laughs> so Mackenzie, I would say one of the hardest parts of working at Ski Racing Media is covering a World Cup race in Europe when we aren't on the ground because we are waking up in the middle of the night, we don't get much sleep, and we're working through the night to publish our race stories in the morning. What was that experience like for you? I know my first year, that was a, a very big learning process for me to get my schedule down and, and what worked best. I'm curious what your thoughts are. The early morning wake-ups for me were easy at first. I'm kind of a, a night owl, so I didn't feel like I was making that big of an adjustment. But after you do it for a couple months and it's happening every weekend, and this year we had two big race series. We had world championships where that's happening for a week straight. And then we also had World Cup finals where you are consistently covering a race every night and you're not doing it for just a weekend. You're doing it for five to seven days. We get up in the morning and watch the races and observe what happens so that our audience and our readers don't have to and try and gather as much information as possible But I do got to say, by the end of the World Cup season, I was feeling pretty burnt out from all of the sleepless nights and mornings where it kind of runs into the late afternoon. Sometimes it takes a little bit for us to get the assets that we need from our contacts in Europe. Um, 
Wi-Fi can't won't be working in certain races and it'll take them a while to get us quotes or photos or different things that we need to gather. So sometimes mornings that should end around 9 a.m. end up going into the middle of the day and you just got to roll with it. I drink lots of yerba mate and coffee and just do the best I can to keep plugging along and make sure that I get the best information out there that I possibly can. Yeah, it's a very interesting work schedule from about Thanksgiving until uh, the end of March with working on European time, essentially two to three days a week. But uh, hey, we make it work. People got to get their World Cup news and uh, we're happy to do it. And uh, when we're home, a lot of the information that we get is again, relying on these relationships we form with these press officers and the FIS media coordinators. Um, obviously, there's only so much you can get from from just watching the NBC feed on your computer or your TV and then also watching FIS live timing. You don't know firsthand what the snow conditions are like. So you're texting a press officer and being like, hey, what are the conditions like today? What are those the set like today? Um, and you really are relying on those relationships to get those little tidbits of information that you can't get from just watching that live feed on a screen. So things work a little bit differently, obviously, from being on the ground to being at home. Sean, can you talk a little bit about our strategy when we're covering at home in the States? Yeah, so when we're watching a race at home, I mean, obviously, we're watching the top racers go. Me personally, I think everybody's different, but me personally, I definitely prioritize the top 30 and uh, pretty much watch the top 30 through in the first run. And then after that, if there's an interesting guy or girl in the race, I'll, I'll watch them. But I'm usually prioritizing Amer- or North American athletes, Americans, Canadians, and anyone else who stands out to me on the start list. Um, and then when we're on location with NBC, uh, it's pretty much the same, but the Unfortunately, I would say after the top 30 is when we do a lot of our interview work for NBC. So we can't obviously be interviewing the first run winner and be watching the race at the same time. So sometimes some important performances might slip through the cracks a little bit in that first run for us. But uh, it's another one of those things. We just kind of adapt and do the best we can while we're there. So the craziest part about the tour and how Sean and I operate on these trips is we're doing it all entirely by ourselves. Most teams that are on the ground for various publications and broadcasting companies are operating in groups of two, three, four, sometimes more than that if they're a live TV production crew where they have various people doing the producing, the camera, working the camera, reporting, etc. The fun part for Sean and I is we get to do all of those things by ourselves, and also coordinate all of our travel as things change, schedules change, and we got to jump flight and head to the next stop. So when we're on the ground, we are doing the interviews, operating the camera and the writing and staying in contact with producers at all times. And the fun part about that for me is I'm pretty young. I'm 23. Sean, you're also young. We're two of the youngest people in the press room. And it's been kind of fun to kind of hang out with the old European boys club and do the job and do it at the same caliber that 
they're doing it. It's been really challenging. And at first I was super intimidated, but I learned so much and I made a lot of good connections with other people in the press that taught me different tips and tricks I can use on the road so that when I'm doing my job, I can do it to the best of my ability. Well, sometimes I wouldn't necessarily describe everything we do as fun, but my first year was definitely intimidating as well, showing up at these races and and standing in between. You have CNN on one side and BBC on the other side, and you're just a, a guy with a camera and a microphone that says NBC on it. So uh, it definitely does take some time, but uh, now I think with a few races under your belt, you definitely settle in. Did you ever feel intimidated talking to some of these athletes that you watched race growing up? I remember my first year in Europe. I was intimidated going into the race day to talk to some of these athletes. Like I'd never spoken to Axel before, never spoken to Marcel before, but it was one of those things where when you're in the moment, you just don't have time to be nervous and you don't have time to to mess up because you literally have one shot with these athletes. It's even though the work that we do isn't necessarily broadcast live on NBC's uh, broadcast, it is on the broadcast later in the day. And with the time constraints that we have to deal with in the finish, we have one take to get the questions and the answers that we need from these athletes. And I remember being really nervous my first day in Europe doing these interviews. And then when it came time to do it, I was weirdly fine and calm just because I think when your feet are put to the fire, you just kind of have to do or die and and you have to trust yourself and, and just get those words out. It's also coming to the realization that athletes are just people and it's super easy to have a conversation with them because they're just talking to you about something that they're super passionate about and that they love to do and they're excited or they're reflecting on a hard race and looking forward to the next one or there's different emotions there that make you realize people you may have grown up watching race are the same as you they experience excitement fear disappointment and it's fun to be able to interview them because you can relate to them and dig in a little bit deeper and ask questions that you would never otherwise have the opportunity to ask yeah absolutely i think they feed off of your energy as well so if you're really nervous they're going to get nervous too and their their answers aren't going to be as good as you want them to be and recognizing that these athletes are people just like you and seeing that these athletes feel emotion though they feel happiness they feel sadness after they don't ski well and and they have to to put on a brave face and, and talk to you after the race when things don't go well um and that takes a lot of professionalism for those athletes to deal with that disappointment when things don't go their way on race day and still field questions from the media after the run All right, we are going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a minute with Jimmy Krupka's interview with Brian McLaughlin. Hey, it's Sean again. I just wanted to take a minute to talk about how you might be able to help us out. The single best way to support what we do at Ski Racing Media is through a subscription to Ski Racing Premium. 
From podcasts and World Cup race coverage to our wildly popular American Downhiller web series, Ski Racing Premium is the engine behind everything we do at Ski Racing Media. It literally keeps the lights on for us. Subscriptions cost $35 per year for unlimited premium content on SkiRacing.com, which includes full-length World Cup race features and many of the pieces you will hear us talking about on this show. If you are interested in supporting what we do, head on over to SkiRacing.com and click the subscribe button. All right, now we'll get you back to the show. And we're back, and not live yet. I'm Jimmy Kripka, reporting for Tips and Tales. And before you listen to my third interview of the year, I wanted to say a couple of things. One, I apologize for not having an interview for you guys last week. I raced 12 times in the past 12 days, and things were a little busy, so that one's on me. Luckily, I got a very famous sought-after guest on the show this week and recorded a fantastic interview in studio. Unfortunately, my studio this week was the back corner of the lodge in Waterville Valley for U.S. Nationals, so there's a little background noise, and I apologize for that. Still, the game never sleeps, and the show must go on, and I promise to keep working to bring you guys the best sound quality and the best interviews in weeks to come. Anyway, without further ado... And we're back and live. I'm Jimmy Kripka. This is the college skiing segment of the Tips and Tales podcast. Here we talk all things college ski racing. Joining me today is Brian McLaughlin. He went to Dartmouth College, skied there for four years, and won an NCAA uh, personal title. And he is now skiing on the World Cup, and he just won the uh, NORAM GS title for the second year. Wait, title? Second. Oh, excuse me. You got second, actually. Um, but he still has a World Cup spot for next year. Um, so, Brian, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. So, I never got to be teammates with Brian at Dartmouth, but he definitely helped set up a good culture and um, a lot of success at Dartmouth. And I don't know if you want to talk about, like, how you wanted to contribute to the team and your legacy at Dartmouth. Uh, I haven't thought too much about my <laughs> legacy in general, but I mean, in my time at Dartmouth, it was great having a lot of good skiers there. I mean, myself, Neff, Thomas Wilson, um, all were skiing fast and at a really high level and trying to push each other in training and in races to try to make like the whole group as fast as possible and having everybody training up to that level was awesome I mean people were all pushing it in training all skiing fast and like last year all eight of our guys that started a carnival qualified for NCAAs so it was a really deep team and I think that was um, a result of like everybody in the team pushing each other in training and having yeah. having a good time so you just you just kind of led by example and you know pushed hard and and the team kind of just did that with you yeah it was a, it was a really um, deep question to ask about legacy. I guess my first question. Um, let's loosen things up. So you're a Pats fan, right? Yep. Um, how how are things looking going into the Pats season? I mean, it's kind of a classic off season. They don't have money to spend, so they're going for the bargain signings. You know, the role players. Um, still pretty thin at wide receiver. They haven't been good at drafting those, but hopefully they can find a few in the draft or a few more veterans. And, Maybe Josh Gordon comes back. We'll see. Yeah. And do you think, you know, this is this could be a stretch. I definitely think that Bill Belichick and the Patriots um, 
you know, coaching philosophy. Some people might get mad at me for this if they're not Pats fans. I know there's a lot of Pats hit haters out there, but I think that there's definitely a um, something working at New England. There's some sort of philosophy um, to the success. I don't know if, if, if you agree with that, and if like you kind of see any similarities to the mentality of ski racing. Yeah, I mean, Belichick's big motto is do your job, so it's kind of just focusing on what you need to do on any given play and make that happen, and all 11 guys working together will make it happen. And in skiing, it's kind of the same thing. That attention to detail is really important. The preparation is really important. And once you get in the ski race, you're just going and doing what you need to do, and then things work out. You're not worried about the result or not trying to make the huge flashy play or like one amazing turn. It just needs to be consistent every time down, and yeah, then results will come. Yeah. So after last season, you 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 know you've gotten your World Cup spot for um, this this season that just happened. How how did the U.S. ski team work with you? Was it? Did you think it was a good setup, and and did they help you out? Yeah, I think it was a really good setup. I mean, I trained with them through the whole prep period and through the season. Um, yeah, raced all the World Cup GSs, and that group was awesome with Forrest as the coach and Garner and. Uh, Ted, Tommy, and Ryan were fast in training and, and fast through, through races to really push me. And I mean, it's a tough, tough jump to the World Cup. I mean, I had some ups and downs, but I think that progress was really beneficial. And do you think, like, obviously it's a huge transition to go from training in college um, and going to class every day to training with, you know, some of the best GS skiers in the world. And, you know, Ted will go down in history as one of the best GS skiers. Um, was there anything that you think or like any skills you learned in college that you brought to the team um, I think the mental preparation side is super important at any level and being ready to race and being um, getting yourself in the right mindset I mean the World Cup can feel like a really big stage but you need to be able to just focus on what you need to do and ski hard and not worry about anything else um, and also like yeah the generating speed from the mellower hills in college and all that stuff really plays in the World Cup. You need to be able to do it like on even more challenging hills and that's 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 the difficulty is keeping everything together. But yeah, I think those things were important. And do you think that you you one skill you probably learned in college was uh, how to go fast on flats. You think that helped? Because there are definitely flats on World Cups. You think that helped at all? Yeah, that helped. I mean, I skied really well at Beaver Creek, which has a long flat in the middle. I mean, it's not a super easy hill, but it's, I don't know. I mean, it, like the World Cups, some have more flats than others. But yeah, I think that skill of being able to generate speed plays on stuff that's even steeper than the flats. It's just like yeah. being able to stay connected enough to do it. And you can't really like generate that much on steeps, but even on moderate, you need to be able to generate on the World Cup because everybody's arcing, everybody's powerful, so you need to keep up there yeah. too. Yeah, for those who don't know, um, Brian's first World Cup this season at Beaver Creek, he was 18th, which is pretty good for it was your second World Cup ever, right? Yeah. So training with with those guys, was there anything that was there any like personal advice that Ted or Tommy gave you or or Ryan? Um, it was more just like don't be afraid of the moment. I mean, Ted, like some advice from Ted was that like it's really hard to bring your skiing from training into races, but nobody's really able to ski at 100% of their speed level. So if you can just ski solid and ski like your normal skiing in a race, you're going to do really well. So just yeah. don't try to do too much. Don't try to cut off too much line. Just try to ski well, and you'll you'll be fine. Yeah. And is that so is that something that 
um, you know, took a little getting used to, like, on the World Cup? Like, did you feel like you, did you feel like you were, you deserved to be there, or, do you, or did you feel like sometimes that it was overwhelming and you had to just, like, absolutely send it or else you weren't going to make the second run? No, I was never overwhelmed, and I felt like I had a pretty good level of send. It's just that there's so many good skiers. I mean, even the guys from bibs 30 through 60 are all under nine points and really good, consistent skiers that have done well in the Europa Cup. So it's more that you just need to eliminate those mistakes that bring you from two seconds to three seconds out and stuff. Because yeah. that's right around where the flip time is. And so if you can eliminate those mistakes by just more consistent skiing and smart tactics, then then you're good to go. But it's just on hills you've never skied before, and a lot of the GSs have weird terrain and are kind of unique hills. And so just figuring out how to eliminate those mistakes was the toughest thing for me. And so you have a World Cup spot for next year, and you're going to be racing next year on the World Cup, I'm assuming. Yes, yes. Um, you heard it here first, folks, um, as reported by Jimmy Krupka. Um, credit me, please. <laughs> um, and you're currently ranked... 41st in the world on the World Cup start list. Um, so, you know, do you have specific goals for the season or just trying to move up? I mean, it's all just trying to improve, but I mean, yeah, I, I want to make more second rounds and, and just through the summer get the skiing more consistent and dialed, figure out uh, equipment and everything to be dialed enough to, to eliminate those mistakes. So I think if I eliminate those mistakes and ski smart, then I can make, consistently make, consistently make a lot of second yeah. rounds and then move into the 30 and then once you get the bibs better, then then like it's a new game. So just trying to keep moving up and getting the thirty, and that's the goal. Cool. Well, Brian, it was great to have you on the show. Um, we love college ski racing, and I've heard from you that you, uh, I mean, you wouldn't take back those four years at Dartmouth, would you? No, that was it was an awesome four years. I learned a lot. Needed to grow up a little bit, and I think, yeah, growing up and being more of an adult to to ski at this level is really important too, and being able to make my own decisions and figure out what I need. And I think, yeah, I think those four years were really valuable. And what would you say is the, the one thing you would tell to someone who's going into college now, hoping to make the World Cup at the end of their four years? What would you tell them that they've got to do? Um, it's just staying focused. You know, if, it's if uh, there's a lot of fun things to do in college and you can do those, but you need to keep a balance and keep everything in line and focus on the skiing. I mean, you might need to supplement in the summer, fall the ski as much as you can, but yeah, just stay focused on the skiing and keep going with the ups and downs. I mean, it's a, it's hard to break your way into every circuit you do, Yeah. just with start position and everything like that. So just, yeah, keep focused, keep working on the skiing and keep chipping away because everything's, a pro each level is a process. Yeah, so. it's a process. <laughs> you gotta trust it. <laughs> you gotta trust it. <laughs> well, that's our show for today, folks. Brian, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Jimmy, thank you so much for another great college segment. And that is our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you all next Wednesday.